Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Hello and welcome to World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at Russia in the aftermath of the killing of the opposition activist Boris Nemtsov. Joining me in the studio is John Thornhill, the deputy editor of the Financial Times, who's a former bureau chief in Moscow. And on the line from Moscow itself is Katrin Hiller, who's currently our correspondent there. John, as I say, you've got long experience of Russia. The news of the killing of Boris Nemtsov, a former deputy prime minister, was very, very shocking. Yet maybe one could argue that Russia's had political violence under Putin for some years now. So how much of a departure does this feel? Well, it's certainly true that a lot of people have been shot in Russia in the 90s and 2000s, politicians, human rights activists and journalists. But I think the scale and the significance of this is really very shocking. Nimtsov was certainly the most senior of the politicians to have been assassinated. Uh, He was the first deputy prime minister in the 1990s. He was still a very significant figure in Russian politics, even if he has been marginalized in the state media. And I think there had been a kind of unwritten compact between the leadership and previous generations of politicians, really since Stalin and Khrushchev's time, that they didn't go after people in previous generations because they are worried that if they were ever to lose power, people might do the same to them. So I think this really does mark quite a shocking new departure. Now, I mean, the implication of what you're saying is that you are pretty clear in your own mind that this did come from the ruling circles, if not directly from Vladimir Putin himself. I think you can certainly say that the atmosphere in Moscow does appear to have contributed enormously to what is going on, this almost war psychosis that is in Moscow at the moment. And it has fanned uh, a lot of nationalist, ultra-nationalist feeling uh, and branded Nimtsov as a fifth columnist, as a traitor to Russia. And in that kind of environment, uh, you can see how this can get out of hand and people do crazy things. Katrin, I mean, you met Nemtsov just a few days before his death and did what was possibly his last interview. What was his mood in the days running up to his killing and the demonstration that he was planning to lead? And did he himself feel in danger? He said that Vladimir Putin was a very dangerous man. He repeatedly said that, but he did not link that to himself. My meeting with him was by no means his last interview. He met the press a lot and he went on radio almost every night. And I think he did a couple of interviews after I met him. But he was in a great mood. He was a bit sick. He had a flu bug and was coughing all the time. But he was very realistic in his outlook on the future of Putin and the future of the opposition. He was under no illusion that there would be a revolution tomorrow. But he said, I'm an optimist and I know what I have to do and that's what I'm going to do. He expected to be continuing to do his opposition work well for another 10 years. He did also say, though, didn't he, that the opposition had been turned into just a collection of dissidents rather than anything organised? Yes, that's right. But that, in fact, is, I think, a very valid description of what has happened over the last three years and increasingly over the past year. John referred to what he called almost a war psychosis in Russia at the moment, stirred up by the media, fed by the war in Ukraine. 
How is the atmosphere now after the killing of Nemtsov? What's the kind of discourse in the public media from the government and from the opposition? Well, you could say it's actually a very fractured discourse because, of course, the state media have tried very hard to not look too ugly in its presentation of this. There have been glowing descriptions of Nemtsov as a great character, a veteran politician, a man who made many contributions. For example, by Dmitry Kisilov, the man we normally see as the chief propagandist on the state TV. But then, on the other hand, if you look at state TV talk shows, we also have a discourse in the state media that's almost completely dominated by trading conspiracy theories that involve the West and maybe the CIA. So so these conspiracy theories allege that essentially the West was behind the killing of Nemtsov? Or the Ukrainian security services or something like that. But basically a set of theories that would echo the initial reaction that came from the Kremlin that called it a provocation and suggested that somehow somebody sympathetic to the opposition had arranged this to make Mr. Putin look bad. Catherine, what has President Putin himself said about the killing? Well, we've had two reactions. The first one from the Kremlin through Mr. Putin's spokesman directly after the murder that the Kremlin saw this as a provocation. And now, on Wednesday, Mr. Putin himself has come out for the first time and said that he sees this as a murder with a political subtext, and he advises the security services that they have to do everything to stop such political murders in Russia. Are rival theories able to gain ground? I mean, how much media freedom is there in Moscow at the moment to put the opposite case? There is enough for certain print media and internet outlets to describe in great detail and accuse the government or some groups that have been encouraged by the government to spread hate propaganda. There absolutely is space for that. But some liberal journalists have made a very interesting observation over the past few days. There used to be this impression that uh, there is the Russia of TV and state TV and then there is the Russia of the internet and there's a complete split between the two and, and uh, the internet is this free space where you have alternative views and where increasingly the liberals are, are being contained. But these days, actually, especially after the murder, we can see that also on the internet there is lots of hate propaganda and lots of radical groups and individuals have taken to the internet and are dominating chat rooms or social media and fighting with the opposition in that space as well. And at the same time, on the state media, there is, to some extent, an attempt to gain the moral high ground and maybe not make themselves so vulnerable to accusations that they're overly propagandistic and negative. So, John, I mean, the situation that Catherine describes, one interpretation could be that the Kremlin has whipped up this nationalist sentiment but potentially lost control of it as well. I think that is one of the worrying scenarios, yes, that certainly the war in Ukraine has inflamed a lot of passions about this, stoked, as Catherine is saying, by the media. And Putin might now be in a position where he'll have to rein in some of this because it could lead into really very dangerous directions. Could I ask you to elaborate? I mean, what dangerous directions do you mean? Do you mean domestically for Russia or externally or both? Well, I think Putin now really has to take into consideration those kind of nationalist ideas in dealing with the separatists in Ukraine. They clearly are fueled by nationalist movements in Russia itself. And it's not wholly clear to what extent Putin directly controls what the separatists are doing. At the time of the Minsk talks, he was clearly not officially speaking on behalf of the separatists, although he was clearly representing what they were doing. So I think he might be thinking that uh, he doesn't want this to get too far out of control because he 
would then be unable to direct what is going on in eastern Ukraine. Catherine, I mean, how much as a resident of Moscow and somebody reporting on the country, are you aware of these nationalist groups as a kind of growing presence in society? Many of the nationalist groups have been around for a long, long time, but they used to be more hidden. I think they used to be some kind of a freak neo-Nazi scene out there. But they've become much more visible because they've been allowed their place in the street and in official media. I mean, some of their ideologues who were seen as marginalized until little more than a year ago are now frequent guests on primetime state media talk shows and allowed to spread their propaganda there. And that suggests to many of their followers that there is somehow a backing from the top. And I think that uh, Putin has actually started realizing that this was dangerous quite early on because he used some language that was very strongly welcomed by extreme nationalists in his Crimea annexation speech, for example. He used words to describe eastern Ukraine and parts of Ukraine in the terms of a greater Russia. Many people understood that to mean that he wanted to annex these regions as well, but he has somewhat backed away from that later. So many people think uh, that suggests that the Kremlin early on realised the dangers of encouraging the nationalists too much. So, John, it does sound like we're kind of back in an era of Kremlinology where everybody's trying to read the tea leaves coming out of the Kremlin, trying to work out what Vladimir Putin is up to. I mean, we're sitting here in the West. How do you think the West's view of Russia has changed over the last year? Do you think that the darkest theories about what Putin is up to are now becoming pretty mainstream? Well, I think there's one very big difference between the kind of classic Kremlinology, which was that in Soviet times, there was a Politburo, there was a collective leadership. What is true now, I think, is that all power is pretty much represented by Putin himself. It doesn't seem to be a collective decision making at all. And that, in a way, makes it all the more unpredictable about what's going on in Moscow. It really does depend on one individual. And I think the Western view of him is that the view, certainly in Washington, is that they had always discounted him as any kind of ideologue. I remember talking to one Russian oligarch recently who was saying, well, we all grew up in the Soviet Union. We were therefore inoculated against all kinds of ideology. We didn't believe in it. But Putin is playing around with some of this Eurasianist ideology in a way that he had kept pretty much suppressed previously. So whether that is just instrumental, that he's using this as a means of supporting his policies, or whether he is becoming more ideological, whether he does see this as more as a clash of civilizations, I think that is where the concern is mounting in Western capitals. Now, of course, Catherine, I mean, the West's main method of trying to respond to what Russia's perceived to be doing in Ukraine has been economic sanctions, economic pressure. How much is that pressure now being felt in Russia? And is it contributing to this atmosphere of crisis? The pressure is being felt very clearly and has been for quite a while. But whether that contributes to the tense atmosphere, I'm not too sure. I think the main response from most people here when we ask about the impact of sanctions and the situation in the economy and, and link to that their feelings uh, towards Putin and, and the, the current government is always that, you know, we Russians, we suffered so many hardships throughout our history and we only grow stronger through hardship. Putin has tapped into this kind of traditional feeling and they seem to be moving in complete lockstep public sentiment and the official propaganda on this. So, so far, there's very little evidence of the population losing trust in Putin because the economy is bad. Okay, John, just to uh, conclude, 
one of the things that certainly worries me as somebody who writes about this is that if you look back at what we've all been saying over the last 15 months, generally, whenever one's attempted to say, well, things might calm down now, and one might achieve a modus vivendi, you get a nasty surprise. And actually, Putin has tended to surprise on the radical end of things, both in Ukraine and possibly domestically now as well. So looking forward over the next year, to put it bluntly, how worried are you? I think Russia exists to make Western analysts of Russia appear foolish. I remember in 1986, there was a big conference of Sovietologists and the question was asked, can anyone foresee the end of the Soviet Union in our lifetimes? And no one answered yes to that question. So I think as ever, uh, Russia is fantastically unpredictable. If I was to hazard any guess, though, it would be that I think within a year or so, we will be worrying more about Russia's weakness rather than its strength. Its economy is heading in a very bad direction with falling oil prices being squeezed out of capital markets, the increasing impact of sanctions, the inability of Russian companies to finance themselves and to continue to invest. So I think the Russian economy is heading in a very bad direction, which will only fuel more nationalist sentiment. And I think that Putin will then become more desperate the longer that the crisis and the standoff with the West continues. And then we are in, I think, even more dangerous and unnerving territory. Well, thanks for that thought. John Thornhill here in the studio in London. Thank you very much. And thanks also to Catherine Hiller in Moscow. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's Corient.com.